0: Peter turned and saw the disciple whom Jesus loved following them. He was the one who had reclined next to Jesus at the supper and had said, Lord, who is it that is going to betray you? When Peter saw him, he said to Jesus, Lord, what about him? Jesus said to him, if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? Follow me. So the rumor spread in the community that this disciple would not die. Yet Jesus did not say to him that he would not die, but if it is my will that he remain until I come, what is that to you? This is the disciple who is testifying to these things and has written them, and we know that his testimony is true. So today I have uh, the privilege of being joined by that very disciple who in fact did not die but is joining me (laughs) today and goes by the name Michael Koch. So, Michael, hello. Welcome. Uh, thanks for having me on this program. So, just to clarify, in case anybody needs the clarification, this is not that disciple, but I am sure he is a disciple whom Jesus loves very much. But the reason why I wanted to start with that bit is because this is such an intriguing uh, passage talking about this uh, disciple whom the Jesus so whom Jesus loved, uh, which has caused an enormous amount of debate and confusion. And actually Michael, uh, Michael Koch uh, has been one of those scholars who has engaged in these sorts of discussions uh, and a particular interest of his has been in the authorship of John as well as the authorship uh, in general of the other Gospels. And A whole raft of other New Testament issues so I would love to kind of get into that for a little bit in a little bit but uh, firstly Michael again thank you for joining me for those of you who don't know who you are could you give us a quick little introduction to who you
1: are sure Um, well I'm the New Testament lecturer here at Perth but you may have heard my accent so I'm actually from Canada um, where I was born and raised uh, I grew up in the church, so my family went to a Baptist church, and I said the sinner's prayer when I was five years old. And, um, and after kind of a bit of a hard time in school, I found myself getting baptized in grade eight and recommitting my life to Christ, um, probably in that season of my life. I went through a bit of a fundamentalist phase. I think I read a lot of end times books, I was just expecting these things must be coming to pass in my lifetime. Um, But I think over time I was starting to mellow out a little bit in my faith. Um, But I was really interested in Christian apologetics, Uh, how do you defend the faith um, to others. And my initial plan after I finished high school was to become a pastor. Um, So I enrolled in Bible college. Um, It was a a Baptist university college in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. Um, But I started to like what my lecturers were doing. And I thought I could do that as well. (laughs) Um, So I did a four-year Bachelor of Arts in Religion and Theology. And there's a specialization in Biblical Studies. And in that context, you know, I learned all the critical scholarship about the New Testament, things like authors and dates and audience and themes of these biblical books, but taught by evangelical professors who helped me try to make sense of what I was learning in the context of my faith. Um, But then I went on, did a master's in religious studies um, at the local university there, um, and after that, I did a PhD in biblical studies at a university in Sheffield. Um, but both those were in public universities where uh, we weren't studying New Testament and Christian literature in um, a theological context, but um, in the context of the humanities in general and, you know, how, how do we understand religious communities and why they believe and practice what they do. And other people were studying other religions. Um, So learning to study these writings in that space. So, um, you know, that grew and stretched me. Um, After I completed all that, I taught in Canada part-time for about three and a half years. Um, But I found out uh, from a friend there was an opening at what was then Vos Seminary in Perth. Um, So I thought, well, it wouldn't hurt to do a Zoom interview. And that turned into a few more interviews. And that's why I came over here and... 2018. So now I've been teaching here, now part of Morley College, the Perth campus for about four and a half years. Yeah, nice.
0: Yeah, no, it's been really great. But that's a that's a big move from Canada to to Australia. How have you found that?
1: Yeah, it was a big change. Um, so you know, I was just willing, like teaching part time, and I was doing some church internships and ministry, and even doing some social work type jobs. Um, but it was the opportunity. Be working full-time and teaching and writing and that was what I loved to do so I was definitely looking all over the world and grateful I came to Perth. Um, I came to Perth as a bachelor and I ended up getting married here and now we have our first baby um, so our daughter Amelia um, so a lot has changed over the course of my season in Perth.
0: Yeah no, that's really great and I think Perth uh, is blessed to have you. You mentioned you did your PhD uh, in Sheffield, and that was in the UK, is that right? That's right. Yeah. What, was your, what was your research in?
1: Yeah, so this is where the authorship interest started. I was looking at the Gospel of Mark and why traditions developed in the second century that it was written by Mark, who was claimed to be the interpreter of the Apostle Peter, or maybe better translator? So the idea of the tradition was Peter was preaching to people in his native language, and Mark was translating in Greek and eventually writing it down. So where did that tradition come from, and um, you know how did that help people receive the gospel? You know when they were reading it through that lens of who they thought the author was.
0: Yeah. Yeah. Cool. So where, can you give us a very brief summary of where that tradition
1: yeah, um, comes from? It looks like it emerges around the turn between the late 1st, early 2nd century. Someone who's identified as the Elder John kind of comes up with that tradition. Um, be, I actually, I could back up a little bit because what people don't realize is our Gospels are formerly anonymous. Mm. So none of them has the gospel writer ever give his name or say, these are my sources and this is where I was in the ministry of Jesus. Um, The closest we get is Luke's gospel opens up with a prologue where he addresses someone named Theophilus that I'm writing to you to reassure you of the things that have been fulfilled among us. And of course, in the gospel of John, you have that. Disciple whom Jesus loved, who was a chief eyewitness, who wrote these things. But even in that case, the author is still anonymous. They doesn't give us a name. Mm. Oh, I should also mention the book of Acts. You have someone, a we who appears, who's traveling along with Paul. So maybe the writer had some first-hand experience with Paul. Um, But these Gospels are anonymous. But what happened is later in the church when they are trying to... um, authenticate them. They were trying to figure out who wrote these books. Um, So the very first tradition comes from this Elder John that mentioned Mark being the interpreter of Peter. Um, And then the next tradition comes from a bishop named Papias who talks about the Apostle Matthew writing his gospel in what he assumes is the Hebrew language even though our gospel is in Greek. And then even later we're getting traditions about Luke being the author of the gospel and Acts, and he, him being the one who is the we who was with Paul, and finally, John being identified as the beloved disciple. So all that starts happening, especially in the second century.
0: Yeah, so there's a lot going on there. Um, could I ask though, Michael, why should we care? What is the importance of uh, trying to untangle all of these different traditions, all of these uh, different puzzles that we've got in trying to work out the authorship. Should we work out the authorship? Is it actually necessary for us today?
1: Yeah, yeah. Um, I guess I would say a few things. One is, I'd say, the inspired text of the Gospels is anonymous. So whether you find yourself persuaded by the traditions that Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John wrote these Gospels or not, Um, You can weigh the critical arguments, the pros and the cons, but it doesn't affect our understanding of the inspiration of these texts. Um, I'd also still say that our Gospels are the earliest writings we have on Jesus. They're written in the lifetime of living eyewitnesses and other written sources, so we can trust the reliability of the Gospels, regardless of how you solve the authorship question. Um, And I guess there's also uh, similarities with, say, Paul. I sure, know. sure. So I think, especially the Gospel of Luke and Acts, probably is written by someone who's familiar with Paul's theology. Um, you know, Paul is the hero of the second half of the Book of Acts, mm-hmm. um, and Luke Acts especially emphasizes um, the mission to the Gentiles, which is a key thing that Paul was behind when he was a missionary all over the world. Um, why the theological relevance is, I think when we realize these Gospels are anonymous, it says that the evangelists were not putting the spotlight on themselves. They were shining the light on the story of Jesus, that the subject Jesus mattered. So they they kind of step into the shadows um, and let the, the narrative unfold about who Jesus is, and that's where our focus should lie. Um, and later traditions were developed about authorship as a way to kind of defend the gospels because in the later centuries other gospels were being written and attributed to other figures like the Gospel of Thomas or the Gospel of Philip or the Gospel of Mary. And so there was a little ba- a battle between who's got the right gospel. Um, but so that we can understand those concerns at that time. but I think for us today, we can say our Gospels are the earliest, they are the ones that are likely historically reliable, and they are the Gospels that the Church has um, used for the last 2,000 years. Uh, and uh, They've heard the voice of the Holy Spirit in them, so that's the grounds for trusting in them.
0: Yeah, you mentioned that uh, these are the earliest Gospels, but um, a scholar, Crossan, mentioned that the Gospel of Peter might be earlier uh, in his, um, the Cross Gospel. Uh, do you think there's any validity in that sort of claim?
1: Yeah, so I, I would disagree with that. Um, so I'm not an expert on the Gospel of Peter, but we have a fragment um, that has survived. So we don't have the whole Gospel, and it, mo- it mainly focuses on Jesus' death and resurrection, yeah. um, uh, What's sometimes scholars call a passion narrative. So the passion means Jesus' suffering, and... Um, and it, to me, seems to be building on the past Gospels. Um, so it, it's kind of embellishing the, the Gospels we have. And kind of in the second century, again, um, Christians are kind of developing further legends. so one of the m- more curious things is the cross itself speaks and proclaims Jesus in the Gospel of Peter.
0: So um, um, the cross—sorry, uh, the— um... The Gospel of Peter, the the story of the resurrection. I looked at a little bit in some of my research, and um, it's so weird.
1: Yeah, do you want to share
0: some more about that? I know it's so great because uh, so Jesus dies and is buried, and then people come to the to the tomb and uh, the cross literally walks out of the tomb and then they ask it a question and it responds and then it grows and grows until its head is in the clouds and then it says some more stuff. Um, Which is, I mean, it's full of that sort of apocalyptic uh, eschatological imagery, uh, which is just so much symbolism. Um, And I, I would agree with you completely that it's a later yeah. gospel a later yeah. tradition but it, it, it there's all of these sorts of discussions and debates going on with
1: I think it's an it, like it's an interesting example of what some Christians were thinking in the second century and we're trying to fill in some of the gaps and the details of what we don't know what happened in those you know moments between the death and resurrection of Jesus um, but probably not historically reliable, not inspired scripture. Um, I guess I could share one more anecdote about the Gospel of Peter. Um, we have this um, story told to us by a 4th century church historian who says there was a bishop in Antioch who knew a church congregation that really wanted to read the Gospel of Peter. So he initially gave them his permission. But then he read the gospel for himself and took that permission back. (laughs) And and he concluded, oh, Peter couldn't have read this because he didn't think the theology of the gospel was orthodox. He thought it denied Jesus' literal suffering, so it presented Jesus as somehow not fully human. I actually don't think that's a correct reading of the gospel, but um, it just shows kind of the debates the early church was having when they are debating should we accept this writing should we reject it is it valuable but not scripture and these debates happen for the first 4 centuries until they basically come up with the criteria for why how to accept a writing you know does it go back to the apostles or their associates is it early is it used widespread all over the church and is it orthodox and those are kind of the four criteria for why they included the writings that we have in the New Testament what draws you
0: back to these sorts of discussions. like Why do you uh, invest so much time into looking into these sorts of questions?
1: Sure. Um, yeah, I, I guess I would say like these traditions about Matthew. So let me just express what the traditions are again. Matthew writing to Jewish people in their own language. And that's recognizing that the Gospel of Matthew, which is a Greek text, but it is very familiar with the Hebrew Bible, and it you know, cites it constantly. It, it, it talks a lot about Jewish traditions and about how Jesus came to fulfill the law and the prophets. Um, so it's drawing on that. But yeah, the tradition, Matthew's writing to a Jewish audience. Mark's the translator, Peter. Luke is Paul's traveling companion who wrote the Gospel in Acts. And John was the disciple whom Jesus loved to recline next to him at the Last Supper. Um, These traditions kind of gave the early church a lens through which we read the Scripture. And so it was valuable to help them. You know, it it brought to light Matthew, the Jewish features of Matthew's gospel, or it caused them to focus on the beloved disciple in John's gospel. But I think as Protestants, um, we always go back to Scripture itself and test those traditions. So sometimes we can say, let's say those traditions do not are not fully accurate in how they're um, explaining the scripture. Then as Protestants we go we go back to the source, back to scripture and say, can we interpret it better? Right? And I think we we'll always do that. We'll always interpret it in our as with the best tools we have and maybe develop our own traditions. Um, and then the next generation of students will come back to scriptures and interpret them again and see can they interpret them better? And we're always going back to the source.
0: So what, 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 what is your passion? Like what? That's the part that I'm really trying to get to. What, what is it that really captures your attention?
1: I guess when we study the Gospels, it's always a case of, you know, they're telling us the story of Jesus in you know, his ministry in the 30s. But they're also written, you know, in the 60s, 70s, 80s, and onward, you know, how does that story of Jesus make sense to this new context, right? So Mark, which Mark's probably the first gospel, um, he emphasizes Jesus' suffering, and you got to follow him and take up your cross, and he's probably really focuses on the cross because maybe his readers are suffering persecution, and so... He wants to help the story of Jesus, how does it apply pastorally to people who are undergoing suffering? Um, And then, you know, Matthew's readers writing in a Jewish context, but how do we make sense of the story of Jesus in light of the Hebrew Scriptures? Um, Or Luke being interested in retelling the story of Jesus and how it foreshadows the mission to all the nations. So Luke's genealogy goes not just back to Abraham, who's the father of the Jewish nation, but to Adam, the father of all humanity. And Luke highlights when Jesus is preaching at the synagogue about how the prophets Elijah and Elisha were sent to people from other nations. And this is um, anticipating God's mission to the world. Um, So we keep doing this. So we keep retelling the story of Jesus, what happened back then, but try and make sense of, okay, what does it mean for us today living in Australia or Canada in the 21st century? I, I, Yeah, I think that's something to be passionate about. So
0: what excites you is uh, really trying to understand, uh, I guess, the, the that unique special message of Jesus for us today, but you try to Clarify the lenses through which we understand that message uh, by looking at the traditions. Does that sound about right?
1: Yeah, yeah. I think, and whatever New Testament book we're reading, um, we're always reading. You know, how did the story of Jesus make sense to this context? To Paul ministering in Rome, or um, yeah, wherever these people are located, um, trying to apply. What, what Jesus' teachings, his example in his life, his saving death, his resurrection, what does that mean for believers in Christ who are gathered in particular social contexts? And we continue doing that today. So the idea of the uh,
0: beloved disciple, the supposed author of the Gospel of John, uh, has kind of come up a little bit in our conversation. And I mentioned it at the top of this episode uh, from reading uh, from the last uh, paragraphs of the Gospel of John. Um, and I was just wondering if you could kind of clarify, who who was the beloved disciple?
1: Oh, big question, but I'll do my best. <laughs> um, yeah, so this is what's unique about John, because like I said, Matthew, Mark don't give any indication about the author's present. You know, the author never speaks in the first person or says, you know, this is explicitly who it is. Luke Also silent, though it does have the we in the book of Acts that helps us try to figure out who the author is. Uh, But John has this figure, the disciple whom Jesus loved, who shows up a handful of times. And then in the last chapter in 21 is the one who wrote these things. So um, who is this figure? So let's just first talk about where he appears. Um, Some people think he appears right in chapter 1 because there's this anonymous disciple who was following John the Baptist when John said about Jesus, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. Uh, I'm not as sure about that. Um, The best case where he first shows up explicitly is in chapter 13. It's at the Last Supper. Jesus has just said, someone's going to betray me. And Peter signals the disciple whom Jesus loved, you know, ask Jesus who he's talking about, who's who's the traitor. And this this disciple leans back towards Jesus and asks, and Jesus tells him, and the beloved disciple doesn't tell anyone. Um, Then in chapter 18, when Jesus is on trial before the Sanhedrin, um, and Peter's denying Jesus three times, we find that there's another anonymous disciple who's let Peter into the courtyard. And this time I think that disciple might be the beloved disciple. He's just described as the other disciple, but that language is later used for the same character in chapter 20. Um, so we've seen beloved disciple. He's at the Last Supper. Now he's at the courtyard. Then he appears at the cross. Um, and Jesus, when he's dying and sees his mother, says to the beloved disciple, you adopt, take her into your home. So literally, you know, care for my mother when I'm gone, but also metaphorically, I'm creating this new family of faith. At the cross and then that figure who's described as that one he sees a spear thrust into Jesus side and blood and water come out from Jesus and literally it means he's died metaphorically you know how is blood used in the gospel and letters of John it's the blood cleanses us of all sins and the water well Jesus is the water of life he's, um and the water is sometimes identified with the Holy Spirit in the Gospel. Then you see the beloved disciple at the empty tomb, and he sees the linen cloths that Jesus left behind, and he believes, um, and while Peter is confused. And finally in chapter 21, the beloved disciples is there fishing on the Sea of Galilee with the, the seven disciples, and he, he sees the Lord, and he, you know, he recognizes him instantly. So when we piece this together, this figure is there at the supper, the courtyard, the cross, and the tomb. So he's this witness who stays all the way through the, the passion, the story of Jesus' final hours. And he, he witnesses um, Jesus' death and resurrection, but he's also this idealized disciple because he, he believes um, He sees the blood and water and knows what that means. He knows why Jesus has to be portrayed. He sees the empty tomb and doesn't need to have an appearance story, even though he gets one in chapter 21, he just believes. So he's lifted on a pedestal so we can be like the beloved disciple. Um, So I'd say at the very least, he's one of the main eyewitnesses in the gospel. Chapter 21 does seem to imply that he wrote it. So I've gone back and forth in this. Either I think it could be paraphrased that he witnessed so much, it's like he wrote it. Or he literally wrote some of the chapters. You also have this we who appears in 21. It's like, this is a disciple who wrote these things and we know his testimony is true. So I wonder if that's like the voice of the community who's added this epilogue to the gospel saying... This is who the beloved disciple is. He's at the very least the source of this tradition, and we are affirming his testimony is reliable. Um, so that's what we could say about beloved disciple. Uh, unfortunately, the gospel never gives a name to this character. So uh, from internal evidence, I think we have to stop and respect the anonymity and just say, he's this major disciple who witnessed these things And he's kept anonymous, I think, also so that we can imitate this figure. So it's like we, too, can be beloved disciples. Um, The reason the tradition identifies him with the Apostle John is it says, look, this disciple is at the Last Supper where the 12 apostles were gathered. And when you look at the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, Jesus has the 12 at the Last Supper, but he also has this special circle of disciples. And they are Peter, James, and John. James is martyred very early in the history of the church. So it couldn't be him, because the beloved disciple, some people believe he's going to live forever, is the passage you read. Um, And it can't be Peter, because the beloved disciples contrasted with Peter. So Peter denies Jesus, while the beloved disciple stays faithful to the cross. Um, So they ruled, oh, it must be John. He must be the one who's the closest to Jesus. Um, it's a good case that you can make for John. I'm just not sure it's completely compelling. I, I think regardless of who this figure is, I think we can still say he's a leading eyewitness and he's a disciple we need to imitate. So that's probably where I'd stand on the beloved disciple. I've written a book on him, though, so if you're interested further. So what, what's the title of the book? I think it's called... The beloved, this, the beloved Apostle, question mark.
0: Where can we purchase a copy?
1: Uh, Cascade Press um, has published that one.
0: Just another follow-up question about the Beloved Disciple. Uh, there's this really intriguing comment about this rumor that developed uh, about uh, the Beloved Disciple apparently never going to die. Uh, and the Gospel seems really... Uh, intent on dispelling that rumour and on uh, really wanting to clarify what Jesus said. Uh, So there seems to be some sort of uh, polemic going on there, but um, I was just wondering if you knew where that rumour kind of emerged from.
1: Yeah, um, so this also happens in chapter 21, um, where That chapter kind of tries to conclude the stories of both Peter and the beloved disciple. Um, So on the one hand, Jesus foreshadows that Peter would die for the glory of God. So Peter would lead the sheep as their shepherd, and he would eventually give his life for them. Um, And then Peter asks Jesus, well, what about this person, the beloved disciple? And Jesus says, well, if it's my will that he remains alive, What's that to you, Peter? You follow me. So it's like Jesus is saying, You just be concerned about your own story and your own relationship with me and uh, leave it to me how I interact with different people, right? Um, But what the narrator makes this note that this led people to believe that the disciple would not die. But Jesus didn't say he wouldn't die. He just said, if, I, if it's my will that he remains alive until I come, what's that to you, Peter? Um, so what's going on there? I'm, I mean, I think there's a few things. One, I think in the early church, because Jesus said no one knows the day or the hour in this coming day when the kingdom of God fully arrives, you know, people always had this living expectation it could be any day right? And we've lived with that expectation over these last 2,000 years. But because that, they thought, well, maybe Jesus, this chief disciple who Jesus loves, surely that figure will live until the day when he comes back and establishes his kingdom. So what I think is going on is I think the beloved disciple probably has died at this point. Um, So again, that gets back to Chapter 21, where it's like, this is the figure who wrote these things. So wrote some of the sources, was the source of the tradition, wrote an earlier draft of the gospel. What does that mean? And we know his testimony is true. So it's like, he was the source of the tradition. He's now passed away. We're affirming, we the community who reads this gospel, are affirming his testimony is true. Uh, And we're reassuring you that, yes, he has died, but Jesus didn't promise that he would live forever. Rather, Jesus is saying, each one of us has our own individual stories, and we need to be concerned primarily with our relationship with Jesus and not try and look over the shoulders at um, trying to steal someone else's story with Jesus. Um, So I think that's probably what is going on, that the epilogue is saying the beloved disciple was the chief witness whose testimony undergirds the gospel. And while this figure has now passed away um, and Jesus has, is still yet to return, um, we don't lose hope. We, you Because know, we trust in this testimony he's given and, and that Jesus is in control. Um, so I think that's what's going on in the story. That was
0: that was just a brilliant summary. <laughs> Thanks for that. And um, I mean, it, it must clearly be a passion of yours. We talked about you know, the things that excite you in this sort of world and your passions. And I mean, it must clearly be a passion of yours. Just largely because you're such a prolific author. I mean, you wrote that book. Um, but I was looking at your list of publications this morning, and I had to scroll for a while. <laughs> oh, <please. laughs> it kept going down. Um, we were just wondering, kind of, what's your process for research and writing? Like, how much time do you spend a day? What, where do you start? Where do your ideas come from?
1: So yeah, my main focus. I write on other things, but a lot of it's on the origin and reception of different gospels, um, and I find after I write one project, there's always kind of loose ends where I was like, cause you're always within the time frame to publish things. So there's some things, or it just doesn't fit that book, but it's like, I can chase up that end later, or, you know, um, build on something I've done before and research new areas that relate to that. So I think one project always related to another, um, So I started with the reception of Mark. Um, Now I'm working on the reception of Matthew, but the same um, bishop who records those earliest traditions, one that goes back to the Elder John on Mark and um, one that we're not sure where it goes back, he gave us both traditions about Mark and Matthew. So I had done some work on both, but in the first book, the focus was on Mark. This book, the focus is gonna be on Matthew. Um, So I think that helps. And, you know, maybe like for grad students, it's the same thing. You you study your classes, you start broad, you have these survey classes, and then you start narrowing your interests, whether you're like, I'm going to do Old Testament or New Testament or theology or missions or pastoral care. Um, You take more specialized classes and then you start honing on, oh, I'm really interested in this topic or this writer or... um, and so I'm going to, you know, read everything I can about that topic. And then you do research methods and project and that, um, yeah, you really become a specialist on that topic. Uh, then if you, it's a really good project, you might publish it. Um, and then if you're going to keep publishing, you might say, oh, are there things that I missed when I did that project or ways that it could lead into a new project? Uh, I think that would be... The process of doing it. Um, And I guess I should also say sometimes you read back what you've done years earlier and you say, oh, I still agree with what I thought then, but I would change this, this, and this. (laughs) I think that's part of the learning process. Like one of my favorite verses is we see through a mirror dimly and we know only in part. You know, one day we'll know fully, but until then we're on this journey of faith and faith seeking understanding and we're always learning and reevaluating, and you know, all truth's God's truth. So um, it's great to keep discovering new things and maybe sometimes learning where we got wrong before and um, seeing a bigger picture as we keep studying.
0: I guess when we're talking about an infinite God, right, uh, our finite minds can only handle so much. And I guess for me, that's one of the things that kind of excites me about kind of theology and all of this sort of stuff, is that we will always have something to learn. So this book on Matthew, uh, the project that you're currently working on, uh, you're going on sabbatical. Uh, Your sabbatical is coming up. Uh, Is that going to be kind of a, a major part of your focus for your sabbatical?
1: Yeah, that'll definitely be the focus. And I'm grateful, you know, the opportunity that I get this semester to just focus on writing. Um, So basically, again, what that book's looking at is, so like I've said before, the Gospel, uh, this Gospel's anonymous. One of the interesting features of it is when you look at the first three Gospels, they all mention Jesus encounters this toll collector, at taking, collecting tolls at a booth um, near a tiny village named Capernaum. And, um, and Jesus sees this figure, and often tax collectors were hated in the society. You know, they are seen as traitors collecting taxes for um, their political oppressors and sometimes ex- um, stealing from the people, taking more of their fair share. Um, and other reasons they were despised. So often in the Gospels, they refer to tax collectors and sinners in the same breath. Um, but Jesus sees this figure and says, You know, come follow me. And he drops everything and follows him. Now, in the Gospels of Mark and Luke, this figure is named Levi. In the Gospel of Matthew, he's named Matthew. And later in the Gospel, it talks about Matthew, the tax collector in the list of the 12 apostles. So first, what is going on there? So I have this theory that um, Mark's gospel, again, is the original story that has Levi at the toll booth. But I wonder if Matthew was also a a toll collector who had been employed for a season, but um, the evangelists just really loved Mark's telling of that story. And so just changed the character from Levi to Matthew Um, because it's accurate enough that Matthew was a tax collector, but he liked Matthew's retelling of the story Levi. So that's one thing. But then why does this tax collector, Matthew, who the gospel never claims he wrote anything or was the source of this gospel, why do the later church sources identify him as the author? You know, we call it the gospel according to Matthew. Um, Where does that come from? So... The, most of the chapters focus on that question. After the initial chapter on the eternal evidence about this tax collector and the gospel itself, it looks at why did they attribute it to Matthew. And again, the theological conclusion and relevance is, you know, we may not be able to know that this gospel is written by the tax collector Matthew, um, but we can say some things about the implied author when we look at the text itself, we can say it was a Jewish follower of Jesus. The Gospel spends a lot of time uh, talking about how Jesus fulfilled the Scriptures, or he fulfilled the Law and the Prophets, or it mentions Jewish customs and it frequently doesn't explain them. So, you know, it's a Gospel that really focuses on how Jesus' story makes sense in light of the whole Hebrew Bible. So the more we know about the Hebrew Bible, the better we'll be able to interpret this Gospel. Um, So we can say Jewish follower of Jesus, um, someone who may have seen himself or herself as a scribe of the kingdom of God. We have this interesting reference in the middle of the gospel about scribes of the kingdom. Um, And someone who's really faithful to the sources. You know, Matthew reproduces almost over 90% of Mark's gospel and perhaps has another collection of sayings of Jesus from another source. So someone who... S- stays faithful to the sources about who Jesus was, but it also retells the story to make sense of Jesus in a particularly Jewish context. And that goes back to what I was saying before about how we keep retelling the story of Jesus to make sense of him in every new context we find ourselves in. You know, How does he make sense of our stories? So that is my focus on my sabbatical.
0: Yeah, great. What else are you doing on your sabbatical?
1: Um... I'll probably work on a few articles um, for journals, and I will go to a conference in the in the U.S. Um, they have what's called the Society of Biblical Literature, or also some people go the American Academy of Religion. Um, it's just a a big conference; thousands of people go, and just biblical scholars from. Whatever book they're doing or whatever type of research, whether they're archaeologists archeolo- or sociologists or uh, whatever their interest, they present their research to other scholars. So I'll make a, uh, I'll make a visit there. Um, and otherwise, just visit family. Um, my wife and daughter will see our family um, in Sydney and in uh, Canada. So we're looking forward to that as well. Yeah, you would be. You must be
0: really excited about
1: Yeah, it's been a big season over these last two and a half years and now that we are able to travel we're looking forward to catching up and reuniting with all the extended family and friends we haven't seen for a few years in person. So
0: what about um, your parents? They must be excited to meet
1: Amelia. So I'm sure we'll have some very excited grandparents (laughs) to see. So it's just a the sabbatical is such a great opportunity for that as well as to further my research interests. So I'm very grateful i got the opportunity
0: absolutely and we're really grateful for the opportunity to have had what i have found to be a really stimulating conversation Uh, your discussion particularly about the uh, beloved disciple was uh, fascinating Um, so thank you so much uh michael for joining uh, me for this conversation today yeah thank you very much Michael is pretty much a uh, encyclopedia <laughs> when it comes to New Testament knowledge. He, um, it's like he's got a pull string on the back of him. You just kind of wind him up, let him go, and he we could just talk about this sort of stuff forever. Yeah,
2: 100%. I like was watching him, and it's like his brain was just like literally watching a computer just grab all of this information from all of these different places. And it's so cool how animated he gets when he's talking about things that I'm like, what does this mean? But it's so I get passionate about it. Just watching him get passionate about it is super cool.
0: Yeah, yeah. He he just dives into it and it's almost there's almost kind of maybe a bit of an obsession to <laughs> To get it all. He's he's just like a big sponge.
2: Yeah, and I, I took a few well, like you said, my survey units with him, New Testament, and it's the same exact thing in class. Like I I would have read all of the preliminary notes for the lecture and then I'd show up to class thinking this'll be a really good question and I ask the question and he'd just be like, Well and bring like sixteen different things and I'm like, I don't know I didn't read that, but where'd you find that? Yeah, in your reference. And there'd be no notes in front of him. Yeah, no notes in front of him. Just like an obscure, tangential thing that he'd just pull out and know yeah. everything yeah. about. Yeah, so like
0: when I asked that question about um, the beloved disciple, um, <laughs> in my head I was thinking, yeah, we'll just get like a really quick little answer. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, <laughs> but it was a masterclass. It was just a masterclass of um, Johannine scholarship. He's just able to rattle off all of these facts about uh this um, enigma and he's just able to present it so clearly and uh just so yeah he, he he's he's just got so much knowledge it's just so good to to talk to him yeah
2: i think one of my key takeaways was just watching i guess his answer to why he's passionate about it is how faith-centered it is that was really really cool because he's such an intelligent person like we just said but i could kind of just being in the room, sense that kind of pastoral heart coming through, like, oh, I want people today to understand the importance of the story of Jesus, and essentially that's what the evangelists were doing in their time, and what he kind of said about Paul being in, in Rome, and seeing how the story of Jesus' death, ministry, life, and resurrection worked worked out around, amongst the Romans, and how that works out for us today in the 21st century. To me, that was, that was really interesting, and Just super humble of him to just be like, man, I just want people to understand the story of Jesus and the person of Jesus.
0: (laughs) Yeah, that's the same for me. Like for me, the major takeaway was kind of uh, how uh, pastoral his heart was in all of this. Like he's you know at the height of this sort of scholarship, but it's for him, it's about kind of making it real uh, for today. So he mentioned you know how we retell these stories to make them. Make sense in new contexts, which is such a well. It's actually such a Jewish thing to do, right? Like the whole Old Testament, they're just constantly retelling these stories and making them fresh, making them new, not changing them. It's the same story, but uh, just making them accessible, and that's what that's what Mike's doing uh, mm-hmm. in this chat. Sorry, should I Michael?
2: Michael, MJ, MJ, not MJ. Yeah, MJ, no, he's, the he's, he's the goat. The, Michael Koch Michael yeah, Michael Coke is, Coke. is the MJ of Morling, really. Some might say, I read that somewhere. Some might say. Did you, yeah, I don't know who, did you. but some <laughs> might.
0: He's the goat. So At
2: Morling. I mean, some said he's better than N.T. Wright. I don't know who, but somebody said that. Wow. Yeah, I read that better somewhere. Yeah.
0: I Mantera,
2: not or a young N.T. Wright. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, if you're listening to this, Please join us. we're coming at you.
0: Come and have a chat.
2: And come have a chat with us. Yeah, that'd be great. That would be great.
0: Well, Caleb, another, another really good chat.
2: good chat. Another delightful, titillating conversation. Yes. Yes. Amen. Very be blessed, brothers and sisters. Good night, San Francisco.